Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Bring the Jury. It has been quite some time um, since our last episode. Today, I've got Luke and Brian Sheely here from Sheely Law Firm, located in South Carolina with offices in Charleston and Columbia. Um, we are diving right into the Alec Murdoch uh, financial crimes um, today. We've got a lot to talk about, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to you, Brian. What do we got today starting off? Well, I feel like we're tying a bow on the Alec Murdoch stuff. So, I mean, you know, I don't know what to start with exactly. We had a trial date of this week for all financial crimes that then has turned into a plea. And so we can talk about that in a second. But before we talk about that, and of course, we've got the uh, murder jury tampering situation that is going to come to an evidence we're going to get an evidentiary hearing but i feel like the right before thanksgiving the most kind of shocking twist in the murdoch saga at least tangentially is um information about becky hill's mm. son so becky hill you know is for people that are thinking about the murdoch case is the the whole basis for the Murdoch challenge to the jury result of the, you know, two murder convictions um, in that, you know, the allegation is that she went ahead and influenced a jury and there's some, you know, affidavits and we're going to have a full evidentiary hearing and she's all lawyered up. And so that's how we're generally familiar with Becky Hill and also the fact that she wrote a book um, about this whole thing. And so, but right before Thanksgiving, um, I think it was Fitz News was the first to kind of report that her son had just been arrested by SLED. And so that's kind of a head shaker there. And it turns out that he was arrested for a state level wire tapping charge. Mm -hmm. And so Luke and I were talking about this. You know, wiretapping is something you see a whole bunch in the federal system. Um, for various reasons, you know, state line stuff. You'll also see, you know, the federal system does a lot of major long-term investigations. And so you'll, they'll use their wiretapping their clients. Yeah. And so with, with the search warrant of authority to allow them to do Right. And so you don't, it's very, because the federal system, you know, has these major investigations, they've got the tools, the resources, they're better equipped. You'll, you'll see some wire tapping cases like that. But here, lo and behold, we've got a one count um, wire tapping case and in the warrant. And by the way, the state statute in South Carolina, uh, wire tapping is a felony allegation. It carries up to five years in prison. And so um, Jeffrey Colton Hill, Becky Hill's son, was employed as the kind of the IT director for the the courthouse it's a question we already had yeah so there we go so Tricky. I mean, in his position as as the pretty, uh, yeah. pretty uh, random there that he yeah. has, uh, <laughs> son happens to be Such a coincidence. Director, um, yeah so he's the head of it and uh, you know again i'm just relying on fitz news reporting apparently he's been there for a long time and makes ninety plus thousand dollars a year uh, doing IT for the courthouse. On you know, 
Information tech? Infor yep, information technology. So every courthouse needs tech folks, right? Mm -hmm. They run our computers. They can assist the clerk of court. We were in a murder trial just two weeks ago, and we were at, at one point very reliant upon the clerk of court and the IT person, the head of IT communications came and reset a system for and us. That was part of the reason why we haven't talked to you for yeah, we've been, over a month. We've been, we've been, we've been, we've been in a lengthy murder trial um, out of town. And so that's why I haven't been here. But so bottom line is Mr. Uh, Hill, and the warrant is pretty clear in his capacity as the IT communications director. He and his official title was the Colleton County Information Technology director, that's the word salad, um, misused his position and unlawfully intercepted and listened to a conversation between victims. So these are two different people that did not give permission for their conversation to be recorded. SLED is basically saying that uh, this was confirmed by an IP address pinging to Mr. Hill's computer. Um, so basically he's using his computer to record a, a conversation somehow and that neither party to the conversation knew uh, of his listening, his dropping the eaves or did they give consent? And so I, you know, because it's so rare for state level wiretapping charges to occur, I mean, Luke, we've been practicing law 17, 18 years I've never defended a, a state level wiretapping. It's always federal. I just pulled up the South Carolina code and usually something like this kind of mirrors the federal act. And it, you know, it basically talks about, you know, you're not allowed to record, but there's, a, there's an interesting part of the provision that says that a phone of one of the recorded parties or any interested parties can be seized. And so that's really the, kind of that the second part of this is yes. Number one, they found out that he was listening to a party between two people that didn't want this happening while he was in, in his position as a Colleton County IT director of communication. But they ended up seizing Becky Hill's phone. So number one, he did bad, allegedly, he listened. And number two, as a result of that, they seize Becky Hill's phone. Now, the statute kind of allows for law enforcement to seize it, pursue it to their investigation, but the reporting suggests that they actually got a search warrant. And, you know, search warrants require probable cause by a judge. And so while the warrant has redacted who the phone calls were between, uh, we do know the date was on July 20th of 2023. And we can be damn sure that one of the parties to the phone call was Miss Becky Hill. Um, Makes very good buck. Now, yeah. Now, Fitz News is reporting due to their sourcing on the ground, and I would like to think that their uh, sources are way more vast than what we have. So we'll just, you know, this is not uh, the volunteering. Apparently, was uh, uh, media presence were prohibited. Um, apparently, the magistrate who said a personal recognizance bond said, you guys got here too late. You can't come in. That's not unheard of. Of course, the media outlets were very upset about that. Um, 
So they didn't get a whole lot of information about who the victims were, but we know Becky Hill's phone was seized. Fitz News is reporting that it was a phone call between Becky Hill uh, listening to a conversation between Becky and uh, Megan Utsi, who's the deputy county administrator for Carlton County. So that would not, that would be the second in command uh, administrator for Carlton County. Um, another phone call was in July, July 20th. So we kind of think about, yeah, number one, sleds, the way this, this reporting is done is that they came across phone records that indicated there was another party on the line. Okay, so that means, Luke, what does that mean? How are they coming across phone records? Does that mean that they are looking into Becky Hill's cell phone? I would say so. So that's, that's why the state charges like this are seemingly rare because typically there's already a big investigation monitoring going on. And so it would seem to indicate that they were, they were monitoring Becky Hill's phone and noticed someone on the line that shouldn't be there. Now, all right, so that's an investigation ongoing. They're basically wiretapping Becky Hill's phone, at least as of July 20th of 2023, uh, specifically a phone call where she's talking to the deputy administrator. Now, why is baby boy listen to mama's phone call with a boss? I don't know. Does, does Jeffrey need a raise? Is he going to get that raise? Is, is, you know, Becky's talking to an county administrator. So it could just be technical logistics. It could be all kinds of stuff, but, um, you know, the clerk of court is an elected official and then you have, you know, so she's kind of beholden to the public and then you've got county administrators, which are, you know, bosses for the county. Um, but you would think they would have to be talking a good bit amongst themselves for logistical reasons, for staffing reasons, all kinds of stuff. But so, well, this doesn't do a lot for the appearance of everything being on the up and up. No. So you've got Becky who's got all these allegations that are the subject of Mr. Murdoch's through his lawyers motion for a new trial. Um, and of course, she'll, she pushes back through her lawyers and says, nothing to see here, everything's appropriate. And of course, the attorney general wants this conviction to stand, so they want to have a big adventure hearing about it. But then <laughs> her son, who is her son in this well-paid job, maybe he's the best candidate of everybody around for information technology. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But he, let's just say he's not. Let's just say he's a guy that can do some IT and happens to be her son. She's elected uh, county official, so she makes sure he gets that job. But then he, because maybe that's just the vibe, or maybe because his mom's in charge of the courthouse. That's just the vibe. <laughs> um, feels like he can do this thing. So it just doesn't help much um, to put the flames of suspicion out on that courthouse, which was run by Becky Hill. No, it really doesn't. But what we do know is that Big Brother is monitoring Becky Hill's phone calls. Ironic that we're talking about family. For a second, I was like, wait, there's a brother involved? No, no, I mean, so, <laughs> what has the brother done? So the only way that SLED is even aware is because they're, they're, they have wiretapped mm -hmm. Becky Hill. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. 
Um, you know, she's got some good lawyers representing her. She hasn't been charged with anything. I mean, they, they're, you know, often good lawyers get involved in the defense of a client before charges ever come. That happens very frequently. Will Lewis is one of her attorneys. He's a fabulous lawyer out of Charleston, former assistant U.S. attorney, um, really smart guy. Um, but certainly there's her phones are being tapped. There's a lot of information that is being monitored. To do that, you have to have a court order. So you have to have probable cause once again, going back to law school for what gets you a court order. Usually wiretaps are only good for a certain period of time. Um, the bottom line is her son at least was caught monitoring this call. What his motivations are, I don't know. He's got a January first appearance date. Um, the reporting in this case says that the circuit solicitor referred this to SLED for uh, try to influence these jurors. And we have a number of jurors that have written affidavits saying, here's what she said. And it's kind of leave it up to the court on that. Um, and here we, you know, who knows why the son would want to listen to a call? Maybe he, the information is very um, valuable these days. Maybe he wants to run to some media outlet. I mean, I mean, we're talking about be so cool. HBO specials, Netflix specials. And if he wants to be the next guy to slip a little knowledge into, I mean, he just made him a co-author of the book. Right. He's salty about it. And he so, wants his cut. I mean, this guy, I don't know why he's listening to the call. Mm -hmm. But what can happen now, Luke, that SLED has Becky Hill's cell phone? Just getting out of a trial that, that heavily used cell phone data. Luke, what can be done forensically with, now that they have a cell phone? Uh, almost anything. Cell phones really are the, the scourge of any criminal <laughs> practice. <laughs> Because they have a wealth of information. I mean, once you have the phone, sure, anybody, I can get a uh, subpoena for some phone records, but really what I'm, all I'm going to get is call logs as a defense lawyer. Luke, one, Luke, what are call logs for our audience? I can find out who you've been calling, but I don't get the content of that. I don't get the data. But if you actually have a cell phone, I'm not 100% sure that's clear, but it seems like it is. That has location data. That has any attempts. With no, they have herself okay. via via search warrant. Okay, and that has just everything: your internet search history, whether you're looking up something shady like how can my son bug my competitor's phone, or whether how can I dispose of the body without the police knowing. That looks pretty bad when police then have that to see what you're interested in learning. I mean, Instagram, Snapchat, anything, anybody you messaged, uh, your, how much movement you're doing, your health data, oh, your heart rate, where you're going exactly at a time of a crime. Um, just, it's just so damaging and nobody has a squeaky clean phone. You can go to anybody, priest, preacher, nun, their phone's going to have some dirt on it. So it's, it's really bad. Um, so especially when you don't expect your, your phone to be seized, but even when you do, 
I mean, she's had lawyers for a few months now. If I were her lawyer, I'd be saying, don't do anything dumb on that phone, but she's she's a grown lady. I, I mean, some people think, okay, sure, but they may not they may not understand what you really mean by it. So it's not good. It's a wealth of information. It's all at their disposal, and then they can put it in nice little charts and spreadsheets. And most modern police agencies have some. Uh, expert, some of them are more qualified than others that can really interpret that data and put it together in beautiful little maps and say, so and so suspect was here at the time they were searching for this, and this is why that's so incriminating. Mm -hmm. And then right after that search, they texted this person who ends up dead. Oh man, everybody's going to prison. I mean, if they want to. The question is, do they want to? I mean, they, um, you know, SLED doesn't want this case coming back for jury tampering. Creighton Waters is in the AG's office as much as they would say they want to do justice and no one's above the law. They don't want this conviction overturned. And so they, they have already pushed back in their motion against uh, the jury tampering allegation with their own affidavit, including Miss Becky Hill, saying that she didn't do anything wrong. And so now we're going to have an evidentiary hearing um, on that issue. So. This seems like a crazy thing. It seems like an unforced error in the Murdoch world, but it just goes to show how small this area is. You got the head of information technology tapping his mama's phone with SLED tapping her phone. How about that? That's just, that's crazy. And now the phone is in SLED's hands. They could do Somebody that. had a valid warrant and someone didn't. Right. <laughs> so what they do with it, I don't know, but are there things in there that could contradict her affidavit saying that she didn't influence any jurors? I mean, think about, just think about your cell phones, people. Think about how many texts you send a day. Think about what's going on in, mm -hmm. your, in your world. All that is now accessible if they wanted it. Um, she probably searched all that stuff on Facebook too, because didn't a lot of this- Oh, on Facebook? I mean, so yeah, Hannah, that's a great point. So yeah. if SLED, I don't have a lot of them, so I want to really like mark one of the this point. moment. So like, if SLED wanted to and say, hey, we want to look into this uh, Becky Hill, check our episode 35 or whatever, we'll recover what, you know, Becky Hill is, you know, on the jury tampering allegations. Accused of doing. She's accused of having basically brought to Judge Newman's attention a Facebook post that someone say was fabricated. Some would say it was about someone else, but like, yeah, her search history. And then they tried, Judge Newman asked her to like, can you find it? And she couldn't find it and all this kind of stuff. But it was all about a juror that was supposed to be uh, talking on Facebook about the ex-husband. The ex-husband, right, yeah. this whole thing. So like, the point is, if they wanted to corroborate what Becky Hill did in that moment, whether she legitimately found a Facebook post or not, guess what? They could find it because now they had her phone. They could put that issue to bed. Similarly, if the Murdoch defense team had access to forensic records, and what they do is they do a Cellbrite extraction. And so Cellbrite is the most used um, software that rips up your phone, take because your phone's got all this data, but you gotta have a way to process it. Um, 
And even so Subrite is the processing extraction software. And then you need smart people like a digital forensic expert to even run filters through that. Um, it's not like dumb lawyers like Luke and I can just poke through a Subrite extraction in an efficient way. I and mean, I can kind of see some stuff, but you really need someone to run filters. So like if they wanted to, they could put that whole issue to bed. And similarly, the defense team, if they were allowed to have access to that, they could do a lot with it and maybe crush Becky Hill. So it's, it's I guarantee you, Justin Bamberg and Will Lewis are not pleased with this particular development where their client's cell phone is in evidence. Um, so we got that. Now, I guess, you know, we can kind of swing into the fact that you know, our higher courts have said, yes, there will be an evidentiary hearing. Um, this defense team for Murdoch has also filed a motion to recuse Judge Newman from all. Now, they filed a motion to recuse Newman from all further Murdoch proceedings, the financial stuff and the new evidentiary hearing, basically saying that he was biased. He's a witness, a lot of different reasons. And so Judge Newman, um, it might have been last week, might have been the week before Thanksgiving, actually. He did recuse himself only as to the Murdoch murder conviction matter, um, Murdoch murder conviction, but not as to any of the financial stuff. So he says, yeah, I, I will remove myself. Um, so what that means is that he will not be the presiding judge over the evidentiary hearing concerning jury tampering. Because uh, it was related to the murder trial. Right. But he is Could. still going to be involved in all the, the financial crime pending state and county level charges. How can you say that you're biased about somebody's. Luke, I know you want to answer this question. In a murder trial, but you're like, but I can look, I can, or can compartmentalize that for the financial crimes, especially when the financial crimes. So happen to be such a large part of it's just great questions. Today. The murder trial. Hannah, these are I didn't rely on judges today. These are great questions. These are Hannah questions. Good Hannah questions. I've been out for three weeks. I, I've been sitting on these. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think we had some bets going. But I, yeah. I whether I lost. I lost. You, I said he would never recuse himself. And I said he would. Uh, well. If we had, all I know is that I said he would not recuse himself. The win was a new car. What was it? What was it? What was it? You bet him on a new car? No. No. Well, and it was interesting, you know, that Dick Carpoolian and Jim Griffin, they they didn't just file a basic motion to recuse. They filed like in the Supreme Court some kind of writ of something. I can't remember the exact terminology. It was pretty fancy. and that ruffles some feathers in the lawyer community, but it was, it was in, right in the Supreme Court, it was like a writ or something. But anyway, and I think Judge Newman, you know, he's coming upon retirement. He was widely heralded and regarded as doing a very excellent job on the Murdoch um, trial. You know, he had a national, international spotlight. And I think probably the issue that did it for him is why would he recuse himself from that is because he might, it won't be that he can't be fair and unbiased, but he might think that there is an argument that he is potentially a witness 
because he's questioning the juror that ultimately excused. He's questioning Becky Hill, and it's just a little muddy. So why why not take why add another error to that? And when we have that discussion, like, well, if he denies it, it's another great issue. If he just outright denies it. So if someone's going to deny that motion for a new trial, let it be a judge that completely has an unbiased, un, you know, an objective, non-witness interest. I don't think Newman, if he, if he weren't part of the kind of questioning of Becky Hill and that the juror that got excused, I think he'd be right there because he would never say he couldn't objectively just use his legal and mental acumen and make a decision. But because he's that, I mean, he, he'll say that what he said at sentencing is just what he always says at sentencing, and he has that right, or that because he gave an interview, you know. He, so I think it's probably that issue. Um, so he'll step aside, but the, the you know the financial crimes, he hasn't, you know, other than the guilty plea, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. He that's next. People come and present things to him. So he now he made a critical ruling in the. In the murder trial, saying that that could be come in to right. into the trial, so that's error in my humble opinion. But that doesn't mean that you can't preside over those cases if someone wants to submit a guilty plea in front of him. Mm -hmm. He can accept it. But I have some thoughts for maybe why hypothetically Murdoch might be happy about the way this is shaping out. But yeah, do uh, tell. Well. I don't, want, I don't know how far you get ahead of yourself, but Ozark it. Yeah, why? Why just, is Murdoch happy right now? And I, will say I mean, that. I mean, he's happy because he's getting an evidentiary hearing just to start. Well, that's great for him, and it's not going to be Judge Newman. And there's some pretty compelling evidence in the standard. The stuff, if like we said, if what is presented in those affidavits by jurors credibly comes to light in in form of testimony, and I don't see you have to give a new trial. So he's happy about that. See episode 25, where we cover that legal standard for an hour. And even if they have like a battle of the jurors, and, you know, six of them say one thing about bad hanky-panky from Becky Hill, and the others say, well, I didn't really feel that pressure. It doesn't matter. Half of them felt that way or a significant amount. It's not like a, 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 a balancing test with some kind of scale where you say, oh, did it tip the scale? And it's just, if there's any of it, it's bad. Um, but... You know, if he gets a new trial and if he doesn't, you know, let's just say, I just don't know. I mean, if it's all about the financial crimes and whether they should have come in and it really was up to Judge Newman to make that decision, which he allowed it in or basically also said that the door was open to them. But if they don't come in, and there's some legal holding, let's say from Court of Appeals, that says that should that was clear error. Well, he had to get up there and talk about them and, and concede his guilt on them, where the only way out of this is far, he could make the argument, the only way out of this was that I had to testify in my own defense and let the jurors understand from my mouth that I didn't kill my wife and son. But while doing that, I had to admit to crimes that I wasn't on trial for. So because of that, now, of course, he has to admit to all these crimes in state court and federal court because he doesn't have a way out. So what if that was deemed error? Does he get through some special creative motion or redo to say, well, that error, he was forced to admit that. So now 
his plea to come before you on this, these charges where now he's getting 27 years was improper. The evidence was improperly obtained. And I mean, I don't know, there's wiggle room down the, the road for some creativity on that. And I just wonder if there's some appellate hope for him that makes him think that maybe he won't serve all that. Well, let's talk about the plea right before Thanksgiving, uh, November 17th. Alec Murdoch, uh, it happened kind of quickly, and these things can't happen on the doorsteps of trial, because remember, he had a trial date right after Thanksgiving, but they went up on a Friday. The full supposed to be a motion to change venue. Yeah, it was. It was supposed to be a motion to tell, you know, make a request for Judge Newman to get, get the heck out of Dodge. We can't get a fair trial in this venue, and that then begs the question, where, where are you going to find a venue full of jurors that people don't know about Alec Murdoch. Um, I think in the pre, in the filings by the Murdoch team, there were like 13 people that had never heard of Alec Murdoch out of the thousands they'd interviewed. So something kind of like that. But like, anyway, they come to Judge Newman at this motions hearing with, hey, we've got a plea. And so the plea was to a slew of the attorney general's charges, the financial charges, a lot of them were the ones that were testified to in the murder, in the murder trial. And, you know, we've covered this before. The reporting was that the defendant, Murdoch, wanted to plead, but the structuring of the plea deal was like they wanted to LWAP him, life without parole. They wanted to get a conviction for a breach of trust with fraudulent intent over 10,000. That's a strike. Get another one. And so, and the only reason we know that is because basically Dick Garputman was complaining about that at the last status conference. Like they won't let us plead. They want to tee him up. They want to do this in a way that they can ultimately convict him and get a mandatory life sentence under our strike system in South Carolina. So that was always the complaint. You know, they were saying he pled in federal court. He wants to plead now, but they, he just doesn't want to plead to mandatory life the way it's structured. So at this Motion change venue, they came to Judge Newman with a plea. And so basically, well, there was like a pause for like three hours. I mean, I think it developed. And yeah, there was a lot of backdoor talking. Oh, there was arm, you know, Creighton and Dick Arputlin were arm wrestling in some some Man. back hall someplace trying to at Alan, you know, Wilson looks pretty fit. He got involved and, you know, I don't know that we'll ever know, but that huge gap in time, I think, was, sure, sure. was certainly the deal was getting thrashed out. Right. And so what the deal was, was a plea to a massive amount of uh, state-level charges. Luke, we're talking breach of trust. We're talking, what else are we talking about? Well, the reporting claim, I mean, I know it's a lot of breach of trust, which makes a lot of sense. You're entrusted with something, you breach that trust, namely client money. It's zero to 10 years, and it's a strike for that level, but they were talking about money laundering and I mean, usually that's the federal court conspiracy that's there to five years, tax evasion, you know, so like a, a smattering of charges, but unless I, I need to see the actual charge, but what kind of shocked me was people were talking about 27 years. Well, that would be the, the plea offer is for 27 years. Right. And so what Judge Newman basically did was he ex entered the plea. It was entered before him, and he accepted it contingent upon 
a later hearing, which is, by the way, tomorrow on the 28th, where he gets confirmation that the Victims' Rights Act has been complied with. And then once he gets that information and feels confident with it, he will then enter into sentencing. And so that's his way of basically saying, you guys, y'all are talking at me fast. We came in here for a venue change motion. We're taking a break for a couple hours and all of a sudden you're saying there's a plea and we're getting this done pretty quick, but you guys bring me the victims in here. Obviously there's victims lawyers involved that want to, so he's basically saying on the 28th, come in, make me feel confident that everyone's on board. And that would be their chance to speak if they want. Right. And so in the reporting by CNN, you know, there's quotes from a lot of the victims attorneys, Eric Bland, uh, so everyone seems to be on board. Um, and it is a deal for 27 years. And so in South Carolina, um, uh, what we got going on here? Hang with us. Technical difficulties. I know we should have upgraded to the faster internet. Actually, we had the fastest internet on the block. We're supposed to. But basically, there's three three different types of pleas in South Carolina in state court. There's an open plea, which this is not, where the state can ask for whatever they want, the defendant can ask for what they want. Then there's two other pleas that could contemplate this 27 years. There's a recommendation, which is probably what this is, where the state is saying we've come to terms. We're asking the judge that you impose a sentence of 27 years. And we're asking for that. And nine times out of 10, that is good enough. But it's not it's not binding on Judge Newman. So he could he could be like, nope, you're a bad guy, Alec. I'm gonna jack you up and run all these consecutive to each other. I understand that you guys are wanting me to sentence you to 27. I understand that Alan Wilson and Craig Waters and team want 20 or are asking me to give you 27, but I'm gonna give you life. I'm gonna stat these up 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 and life you up. If it's a recommendation, Judge Newman could do that. The third type of plea is, and I actually did one of these today, is a, a negotiated plea. It's a binding contract between the state and the defense lawyers. And the only thing a judge can do is accept it or not accept it. All the terms have been agreed upon. Not every judge takes negotiated pleas. Luke, does Judge Newman take negotiated pleas? He does, but under very rare circumstances, this would be one of those. Right. <laughs> so if I were the defense team, especially since they filed motions asking Judge Newman to recuse himself and all this kind of stuff, I would really want to insist that this be a negotiated plea. I would suspect that is what this is. Right. Because of detail in particular. And so then you would have to have victims on board. The attorneys are already talking to the press that they're on board. Um, they're saying a couple different things. You know, they, one thing, I'll just state this. This is one thing I don't like. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the attorney general is saying the, the plea is a win. Everyone's going to have a day in court. Um, that's all fine. You know, Alan Wilson's saying victims will get peace and hopefully justice. Here's one thing I don't like. And I highlighted this because it annoys me. I didn't care for that either. Good. Did you know what I'm talking about? So often in high profile cases, there's a lot of media coverage, and a lot of citizen following you'll get a lawyer's, you know, lawyers, defense lawyers, 
our, our literal ethical responsibility is a, is to be a zealous advocate. That's our that's our job title. When we swear an oath, we are to be zealous advocates for our client. I got a gnarly burn. I was cooking a. He was fighting the law for his I clients. Was cooking a casserole for my wife, and I hadn't seen that the burn really got. Kind of, anyway, so. Anyway, what kind of casserole? It was like a cheesy hash brown casserole. She was feeling kind of under the weather and she was like, make me what I want. And I was like, she sent me this recipe. It's just basically like a loaded baked potato in a casserole. Mm, this sounds amazing. And it fell out of the oven and I had to grab it. And I, I anyway, but we are zealous advocates. And so everything we do in defense of our clients is allowed for and demanded by the Constitution. So, but often in high profile cases where, you know, you'll get like people charged with bad things, their zealous advocate lawyers aren't bad by association. And if we get a blurring of the lines about that, mm. because, oh, therefore you defend a murderer, you must be a bad lawyer, a you, bad human, a bad, bad human and unsavory mm. character. That is not the case. Better call Saul. Um, you know, it's one of those like. You know, Jack Nicholson, you know, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. I mean, you, we need good, zealous advocates representing defendants. And I'm not just talking about Murdoch. I'm talking about those charges of serious crimes. You need Stand between citizens and government. Right. So we are demanded ethically to be zealous advocates. And then the state, their role is not to... I mean, they are literally ministers of justice. The role is not to win. It's not to win. And so you'll see young prosecutors sometimes get that definition blur because they're competitive and they want to win for their victims. They don't have clients. They have victims. All right. So they're not supposed to be zealously advocating. They are ministers of justice. If they see a victim with a problem in their story, they're supposed to consider that. They're not just supposed to prosecute to the fullest because they think they have to because they want to win. So, but my point is this, I, I don't know who's, this is a quote that CNN had and it, it says it's from the victim's attorneys and it's regarding this plea. It says, and I'll quote their paper, this is CNN, Alex's victims will get a chance to look Alec Murdoch in the eye and his lawyers and tell them how they feel about him and how he manipulated them and the damage that they have done to them in their lives. So what I don't like and why I highlighted it, it's almost like the lawyer team are the criminals as well. Mm -hmm. and, and because of the media coverage of this case, it has really been, it's been made to be that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I just don't, when you and I, on Twitter and, and I know that Eric Bland and like Dick Carpulian know each other personally. They had a relationship. I know that because I live in a state and I know that they used to work cases together. Um, so I don't know. I just what I don't like is like quotes in the media that, you know, look, the victims get to look out Murdoch and his lawyers like like the lawyers are sinister as well. No, they represent somebody that was presumed innocent until he pleads guilty to financial charges. So it's just I don't like the blurring of, of the line on that. It's just it's not it's not what we need. We don't need to denigrate lawyers for for doing our constitutional duty. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is literally 
the right to counsel. And it's, it's a hallmark of our justice system. It's embedded in our constitution. Six. Sixth Amendment. So I just don't like stuff like that um, as much as this Murdoch case has become wildly covered and somewhat of a circus in terms of back and forth. But anyway, I'll just, I'll say my piece on that. that. No, that's a good point. And I think a lot of times when we were kind of weighing in on this case almost a year ago, um, you know, a lot of people in the chat would ask, you know, would you represent him? Would you represent him? And the answer was always yes, because, and you guys explained kind of the danger in picking and choosing who you represent or what kind of cases you represent. And I think that that's a, a valuable thing to like kind of circle back to. I know Luke, you answered it last time. I don't know if you want to take that away again, but why it is so important to represent anyone and everyone, obviously there are certain situations, but. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean it's a personal choice for a lawyer, but as, as a society, if we start allowing less due process for who we think are the really bad guys. Mm -hmm. So perfect example here, whether the clerk of court is jury tampering, that's a, a serious attack on due process. So if we allow less due process for who we feel are just really bad people, then that becomes a norm, a societal norm. And then it becomes okay to do it to the mm, kind of bad. And then it's okay to do it to the good because we're just used to less due process. So we, it's a slippery slope. So that's why we make a habit of our practice to defend the worst of the worst um, and everybody in the same way. And society has to have it that way because we don't give a full-throated defense of who, you know, the media in a certain moment or county in a certain time I think is the absolute worst. It just, the other people that, are good and decent also got caught up and maybe mistakenly they're going to get shoved down that tunnel of no due process and just next thing we know we've lost the country that we fought so hard for so it's it's a very sincerely profound principle that we try to adhere to mm -hmm. so we don't like it like brad says when the lawyers who were doing their job sure they got paid good money and maybe they like some of the immediate attention as well it's good for business but they are not the people on trial and, and they have, especially in a lot of their post-trial filings done you know, pretty remarkable job of what they had to work with. So. But the sentencing will go on tomorrow on the 28th um, in front of Judge Newman and I, it'll be probably an all day affair. We're gonna have tons of victims speaking, tons of victims lawyers, and it's already been accepted. So this would just be a very long sentencing. At the end, Judge Newman will have to decide whether or not he's going to do that 27-year deal. And like Luke said, probably rightly so, it's probably a negotiated plea, which really means Judge Newman either has to give the 27 years or he has to say, I can't do it, find a different judge. Um, this Now, the Attorney General's office made a point in the kind of press conferences after the plea was entered that this will be, he has to waive his right to appeal. So Luke, you were kind of thinking about the error in the murder trial and the financials and what that could, that's like a little hidden egg maybe for something that will, part of this plea deal is that you have to waive his right to appeal, which is a special consideration that can be done 
What's the case? State v. Spoon? Yeah, that is it. You can, you can waive your right to appeal. You can never waive your right to challenge your lawyer's advice and giving you that. <laughs> to waive your right to appeal. Right, right, right. Uh, so State v. Spoon is, is, the, is the case on point for that. And then it was also made known that this was for him to do his time in state prison, not federal Bureau of Prisons. And, you know, so we kind of were talking about legal wrangling and whether, you know, Alec Murdoch was going to try to structure this in a way we could serve his time in the federal Bureau of Prisons, which is a much, much um, different living environment. But the bottom line is this, I mean, this, State SCDC, the South Carolina Department of Corrections, is terrible. It is god awful. It's violent. It's dangerous. It's just a bad place to be. But Alec Murdoch is not living like everyone else because he will have to be in what's called statewide protective custody. Um, so he, his living situation is probably a little different than just your average uh, double lifer on a level three yard, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because he's just too much of, he'll get killed in an instant. He'll get extorted in an instant. He'll get whatever. So I, he's probably not living the same type of situation that other people are. Not that it's better or worse. It's probably just a whole lot more isolated. Well, I guess that's better if you're, you know, with people that are maybe want to do you harm, but it, it, it the way the, how statewide protective, protective custody works is they basically move you around and you don't really know where you are. Your lawyers may know, but generally you're kind of kept in safekeeping and you're not, you're just not on a, on a normal yard. So I assume that's how it's working. Um, because otherwise it could be a big liability for the department of corrections. And I think that's what we got. I think, I mean, tomorrow there'll be a whole nother thing. Um, it'll, you know, I'm sure court TV will be covering it. I would anticipate this to be for all of those that are really fond of judge Newman. Think of this as his last, um, he'll, last time he will likely preside over the, uh, a Murdoch financial matter. So our internet again. There we go. So bottom line is grab your popcorn, mm -hmm. uh, log into Court TV, and and this will all very likely come to a conclusion of 27 years tomorrow. And we will retouch, rehash it next week. Yeah, well, we got lots to talk about. Yeah, we got lots to talk about. Now that we're back, we're back, baby. We're back, baby. Yeah, I'll be well. We do have a trial coming up oh. in two weeks. But so many lawyer things that you guys have been doing lately. You guys been so busy with your job. Well, I'm curious to see the paperwork on this deal. I've been heard, heard them talk about 85%, but I'm still struggling to figure out how to get there because all, all these charges are 10 years. They might be stacking them on top of each other to get to 27, but not going to be 85%. Maybe I would be proved wrong, but I'm, I'm curious to see that, how that works We out. will need to get... Make the, some bets. We'll get, some we'll, bets and we'll, we'll get the sentencing sheet. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. It has felt good to be back. And you can catch us all next week if um, there's not other responsibilities taking place. Um, 
follow along on social media to get those updates. If you have any questions or cases that you would like answered or covered, um, feel free to send us messages about those so that we can check them out. And we will see you next time. This has been Bring the Jury. <laughs>